The United States of America, a country many regard as a superpower. Yet more than 13% of adults can't read or write above third grade level. That's the same or worse than an eight-year-old child. Censorship of library books is also on the rise. The American Library Association reported a record number of demands to censor library books and other materials last year. More than 1,600 contested titles address mainly race and gender issues. Tracy Hall, executive director of the American Library Association, is one of the loudest voices in promoting freedom of publication and book access for all. What drives her is the belief that free people read freely. Her career has focused on fighting for the reader's right to read, learn and grow. But with more calls for censorship, the issue has become increasingly politicized. So will the so-called land of the free remain so for readers? The executive director of the American Library Association, Tracy Hall, talks to Al Jazeera. Tracy Hall, executive director of the American Library Association, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. Uh, Tracy, I believe that your favorite word is abracadabra. Can you tell me why? Yes, abracadabra suggests um, infinite possibility because I think this is a moment, as we know, where libraries, uh, are really caught in and embroiled in a conversation that is an important one about our democracy. And so I think abracadabra is, is especially important now because what we want to do and what I want to do is to ensure that libraries remain strong and, and continue to be the bedrock of, um, I think, a country and nation that's really built on the notion of open access and also mobility, social mobility. I think it's really appropriate that it's a, a magic word because you discover so much of the magic of books when you're, when you're a child and libraries at that time can feel like such a portal to, to another world. I believe you grew up in South Central Los Angeles and I know you were very close to your yes, family. Indeed. Yeah, especially your, your grandmother, Bessie. Can you tell me a little more about what books and libraries meant to you and your family at that time? Yes, well, you know, my family is a product of the Great Migration um, here in the United States, um, which brought um, hundreds of thousands of, of families, many of them, most of them, Black, African-American, out of the South and into the West Coast, where my family went, to the East Coast, um, to cities in the Midwest, like Chicago, where I live today, and, um, and many, many of those families left the South because they were in search of economic opportunity. They were in search of educational access. And I think my grandmother saw libraries in particular as a conduit to both. So my grandmother was uh, responsible for me getting my first library card and really introducing me uh, to the world of, of libraries because she had such a firm belief in the possibilities that they offered. How much time did you spend in libraries as a little girl? What were your favorite things to do there? Story time, of course. I spent a <laughs> lot of time, um, you know, all all summer, most most of the summer, uh, the weekends. Um, uh, I didn't really even think about um, other options. Sometimes I'd go to the park if my friends would would drag me, but I was often in the library. I I, I loved. I love story time. I love art programs. Even today, um, many libraries offer sometimes the only art programs 
that young people, that children might have access to. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and alongside my love of libraries, I became really interested in art and art making. Tracy, I know you've had a number of jobs in, in different fields, but it does feel like the one thing they've all had in common has been this sense of service to your community. You worked with the homeless in LA, I believe, and in social services. And you also, at one point, set up a secret literacy program in the basement of the library you were working in. Tell me more about that. Yes, in the basement of the library that I was working in, absolutely. Um, shortly after I uh, received my master's degree in, in library and information, Sciences, I became the branch manager of um, a branch in a community that, um, you know, had a number of people who hadn't finished high school or um, who were blue collar workers. And many, many of them confided their hopes and dreams in me. But I remember a few in particular um, would confide that they didn't know how to read well. And they also didn't know where programs were that they could receive literacy instruction. And when I inquired, I realized that there were no programs on our side of town. So I, um, I became a certified literacy instructor along with one of my staff members. And we began to offer programs in, in, in the basement of, of the library uh, because we didn't have a lot of resources even for the traditional library services. And, um, and and so it was important that we do this, but because it wasn't exactly sanctioned, uh, <laughs> I, we, we did do it sort of covertly, but we, we in, in the end, were actually received an award for the, the impact that the program made. And that's amazing. It reminds me a little bit of a story that you've also shared um, about your father telling you that you were meant to be a librarian because I believe your great-grandmother, Lena, ran a one-room schoolhouse for colored children in East Texas all those years ago segregated libraries too. I mean, that wasn't so long ago either. A lot, of a lot has changed since then, but it feels like inequity hasn't really changed. Do you feel like, like America is less segregated these days or is it just a different form? I think that democracy is a process, right? And I think that nations uh, go through all types of, of periods and, and changes as they, as they work to reach their goals. And I definitely think that libraries, whether they're school or public libraries, are a part of our reaching those goals, that quest for equity. And I think that libraries um, have moved over time um, to not only reflect, but I think to anticipate uh, the goals of our community. I, I am so happy that school and public and academic libraries are often the first resource um, that many people in our community uh, uh, utilize. And we know that before the pandemic, uh, libraries all over this country were responsible for one billion visits. So to me today, I, I believe that libraries are a part of our critical infrastructure and, and, and that their accessibility, we depend on that. And billions of people, um, I think all over the world should be able to rely on libraries as a first resource. Tracy, you talk about libraries there as spaces for convening. And I know you recently visited um, a library that I believe was one of the first areas where there was a, a sit-in during, during the civil rights era. So they are spaces for convening, certainly, but do you feel that they're also perhaps spaces for resistance? Absolutely. You know, the first, you're referring to the Barrett branch of uh, the public library in Alexandria, Virginia, which was the site of one of the first 
civil rights sit-ins in 1939 when five young men uh, who were resisting and protesting the fact that Black taxpayers in Virginia, um, in Alexandria, were paying for library services that they themselves couldn't use. Um, they visited the library, they asked to register for library cards, and when they were denied, they began to read books in the library as a sign of protest. Mm -hmm. They were arrested, and uh, it wouldn't be another 20 years uh, before uh, Black people would be able to access that library equitably. So when I visited, I, I remember thinking that my being there as the head of the American Library Association and being greeted by a young Black woman who was working there, that that in and of itself was a sign of how far we've come mm. and how important their sacrifices in 1939 were to both of our being there in that library on that day. You say how far we've come, how far America has come, Tracy, but you also alluded earlier in our chat to a fight that's ongoing right now in America. In the past two years, I was having a look at the numbers. Your organization has registered the highest numbers of censorship challenges since you began tracking them. PEN America recorded that school book bans are on a steep rise, 28% more in just the first half of this year than in the previous six months. What does that say to you about the America of today? Well, one thing is that we know that reading, and, and you know, again, that conversation you know, that we're just having about access to, to libraries, that's another form of censorship. And when we see today, many times, people haven't read the book that they are censoring, and, and they'll say that. What we have to understand is that this is the politicization of, of reading. Um, there is a far more pernicious agenda uh, behind censorship. Uh, the people who want to censor, who want to eliminate a freedom of expression, which is, of course, uh, a part of our First Amendment rights, are not patriots. They are not defending uh, the democracy of this country. In fact, they are working against it. And we have to understand it and call it out as such. The majority of people in this country believe that free people read freely and that that is the bedrock of democratic engagement. So it is really important for us to understand, stand up, and call out what we see for me as one of the most unpatriotic activities that I have seen, which is to ban fundamentally the, the right to read, the right to write freely, and of course, the right to dream and to ideate and the right to self-expression, which is the, a baseline, at baseline, a human right. Tracy, it does seem as well, even within the context of the, the divisiveness that we see in America right now, that the topics of the banned books are now also expanding. Um, so race, racism, LGBTQ themes, we know that that's been very contentious for, for some time now, but now we're also seeing book bans around violence, health, death and grief. What do you make of that kind of trajectory? Well, many of the books that are being banned are some of the finest works um, of, of literature. And what we're seeing is um, people taking one passage, one sentence, mm -hmm. one line from one page and saying to people, oh, don't you think we should ban this? Don't you think we should protect your children? When in fact, what literature helps us to do is it allows us to learn from our history so that we don't repeat um, the parts of it that we shouldn't. It allows us to gain empathy and compassion 
for other people and their struggles and the things that they have been through. And so when we begin to restrict literature, um, and, and sometimes when you read the reason why some of these books are being censored, you just shake your head because you can't believe it. We saw most recently The Hill We Climb uh, being restricted mm -hmm. in the state of Florida, a book written by uh, the youngest inaugural uh, poet laureate, um, Amanda Gorman. The book is all about how we must come together as mm -hmm. a nation to work together, to honor each other's stories. For me, when you see books like that, books about equity and civil rights, um, when you see books like that being banned, it means that we have to stop at this moment and resist because that elimination of, of that civil right, the right to read, um, presents a slippery slope for the elimination of other constitutional rights. Well, Amanda Gorman's book, I was literally about to ask you about that because that was banned in Florida and also in Florida. Some school teachers in parts of the state have also been told to clear out their classroom libraries, especially of, of books that haven't been individually vetted um, by a library technician, I, I believe is, is the phrase. But these are, these are teachers who have brought books in that they want to share with their, their students, and they're not allowed to use them in classrooms. This is obviously changing the way that teachers are able to teach as well. Absolutely, right? And one thing that we have to understand is that we are talking about librarianship, school librarianship, public librarianship, academic librarianship as a profession. These aren't individuals just bringing in books that they like. We're talking about literature reviews. We're talking about the fact that before we order or buy books for libraries, we're looking at how will this book supplement, especially in schools, the curriculum, or in terms of the public, how will this book respond to the local needs of my community? So this isn't about um, individuals just bringing in books they like. And I think that we have to honor the fact that librarianship, that teaching, healthcare, we're talking about professions and professionals that no one untrained member anywhere of, of that's assigned um, should be able to step in for. Um, and so that's one thing that I think is being lost in this conversation. Mm -hmm. What we're doing is deprofessionalizing a profession that has been around since the beginning of, of this country. What we know is that in the beginning of the country, one of the first acts was to establish a congressional library and public libraries. The notion of the free public library has its origin stories here in this country. And that is built on the professionalization of a sector of people who are trained in the art of information retrieval and storage and dissemination, collection development. Mm -hmm. And so I, I really take a, a deep pause, I want all of us to, um, because I, again, believe that there is a larger and more pernicious agenda um, at, at, uh, at hand here. But the other thing I think that it is really important for us to understand is that the book banning is also a part of a larger effort many times to defund uh, the public libraries. If you look at some of the legislation um, and to defund uh, school libraries, some of the legislation in some states and places um, where we are seeing book banning, we're also seeing uh, attempts to cut back or diminish other forms of educational and library services. Uh, I want to get to the, the pernicious aspect of, of what you were just alluding to there in, in a second, Tracy. But let me pick up on something that you mentioned, because it feels like you said there are lots of different reasons why um, people are wanting books banned. But it does feel like some of that stems from a fear of what could be dangerous. And I wonder, 
is it that people now feel that additional themes in literature, especially in children's books, could be dangerous? Or is it just that they've always felt that way and now they, they feel more able to speak about that openly? I feel like we have to always uh, guard against the notion that knowledge is dangerous. Mm -hmm. Because again, uh, we are talking about individuals who by and large haven't read the books. Mm -hmm. If you look at some of these challenges, uh, there, uh, there's a lot of copy and pasting uh, as opposed to people who are deeply reading. Many times I might get uh, emails from people saying, you know, why are these 164 books banned? And a couple of times I will respond, if you've read any of these books in their entirety, I'm happy to speak with you about them. And I never, I never get a response back, uh, honestly, because unfortunately what we need to do um, is not ban books. We need to read books, mm -hmm. right? Because I think there's another statistic that says that um, for people, once they graduate high school or college, depending on what their terminal degree is, many times people will not read books in their entirety ever again. And that's something that I, I, I don't want this uh, ban, uh, this, this wave of book banning to have a chilling effect on our lifelong learning, because that is so important to us uh, being contributing members of our society. You have advocated very strongly for self-expression, but also for anti-racism. And we know there have been some controversial children's books, Dr. Seuss, Roald Dahl, whose estates have actually taken their books back or, or changed parts of them, either because of the pictures in them or phrasings in them, because they felt that they were perceived to be racist. And I'm curious about what you think about that, because some would argue that, you know, it was of the time, so that should continue existing so that people can share with their children what was then in the conversation at the time, but then to put that into context. How do you feel about, about that kind of rewriting of children's books for this era? Yes, well, number one, we have to understand intellectual freedom and equity, diversity, and inclusion as mutually reinforcing principles, right? Um, they are not uh, in a contest with each other. There is not a battle between them. Oftentimes, one is the prelude for the other. So with freedom of expression, it does mean that people are going to write things that we may disagree with, and that is their right. But it is not our right to censor. Um, uh, to say that, okay, what you're saying, um, we're just, just going to pretend that you didn't say it. We're going to erase it. And I think that it's also important for us to understand that just as we're seeing now, many, many times uh, the works that are being censored are works about freedom. They are works about equity. They are works about marginalization and um, how sometimes the marginalized might tri triumph and gain access. So the, the books that mostly are banned um, are books that are talking about justice. They are talking about voice and lived experience. But I believe, frankly, that it is everyone's right to write and to read freely. That is a core principle of librarianship. We have these five laws um, about librarianship. And one of them is every book, its reader. And the second is every reader, its book, meaning th their book, meaning that um, everyone has a right to read a story and everyone, every author has a right to write a story and to seek to connect with an audience. Fighting censorship 
is a responsibility, obviously. Our mission requires us to enhance learning and to provide access to information for all. But it also means that we work on other issues like adult literacy, increasing access to instruction for adults, heads of households, whom if we don't intervene in low literacy, um, we, we find families that are caught in both uh, generational poverty, as well as very limited generational access to education or educational attainment. We work on universal broadband, the belief that access to the internet, especially since access to employment, access to education, and access to public health largely depend on access to the internet these days, that we fight for universal broadband, that we begin to think about broadband as a basic utility like access to water or electricity or transportation. Um, it means that we also work to support rural libraries and, and residents in rural communities where there hasn't been investment um, at the same level um, in some of this infrastructure. But Tracy, even despite those efforts, as you mentioned, uh, literacy rates are, are pretty shocking. So 43 million adults in the US cannot read or write above a third grade level. The Department of Education says there are 130 million adults with low literacy skills. Uh, you talked there a lot about digital literacy as well. And I'm curious about how with technology and the internet, social media, at the way that our attention spans behave these days and, and how few people actually pick up physical books, how do you begin to try to tackle any of that in the, the space that we live in now? We have to use technology as an accelerant, right? Uh, we, we then know that part of our strategy um, for supporting uh, adults who have low literacy is technology uh, because we know that people with the lowest levels of literacy um, tend to not use uh, the internet. And, 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 and that's important because if you're gonna be filing taxes, if you're going to get a, your a tax return, um, those kinds of things, if you want to be able to track your, your uh, child's progress in school, you need um, access to the internet. You need to know how to use it. If you want employment, we know that most jobs today, there is not a help wanted sign in a window anywhere. Jobs with livable wages tend to require a certain level of not just reading literacy, but digital literacy. The answer, I think, to adult literacy instruction today is that we also do uh, digital literacy simultaneously. Mm -hmm. But I think we want to understand why we have such low literacy. I think low literacy tends to be hand in hand um, with low wages. So I do think that we have normalized low literacy in some aspects of this country the same way that we might have normalized poor housing access or uh, substandard education in certain communities. Um, it, it really is about reshifting our values, mm -hmm. opening our eyes and understanding that we won't get to the levels of productivity in this country. We won't even get to the levels sometimes of the people who care mostly about wealth um, if we allow segments of the population to be completely left out of the marketplace and out of industry and out of our economy. Tracy, given how interlinked all of this is, how do you then avoid being seen as taking a political position here? We have to resist this, this, resist this effort to politicize the notion of access. Access and equity are not political ideals. They're purely democratic ideals. And they are ideals that I think 
um, undergird um, many of our aspirations as societies all over the world. So I, I think what is it is important for those of us who work in libraries and for me is to keep our eyes on the prize. I became interested in, in libraries. I became a user of libraries because my grandmother saw them as a pathway to personal mobility for me hmm. and a, a right of access that she had been denied. Um, but I became deeply interested in libraries because I'm really interested in the notion of justice and of support and of community development and community uplift. And frankly, and I have to be honest, because I love people mm -hmm. and I want the best for us as a community and I want the best for us as individuals. And I saw librarianship as the way that I could contribute and give back um, and a way that I could be a part of solution finding. And so for me, that is not a political or partisan effort. It is a part of what I think the human a project is about is that we give as well as take. Tracy, not so long ago, you wrote, let my work honor my great grandmother's dreams from that one room schoolhouse all those years ago. Thank you so much for sharing your work with us here. Tracy Hall, Executive Director of the American Library Association. Thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. Thank you for having me.